Hey, this is the Rage Story of Survival podcast, uh, episode three, where we're going to read chapter three. Chapter three, Aaron, May 10th. Put your hands up or I'll shoot. My voice echoes off the walls of the narrow alley as I shout at the man. He is about ten feet in front of me, and all I can see is his back and arms. In front of the man is a pile of people who are ripped apart. My stomach churns, and I have to force myself not to throw up. The man turns, and I see his face twisted in a sick smile. Blood drips from his lips and chin. His blood-red eyes burn into me with an inhuman rage. We're coming for you, Aaron. As the man speaks, bits of flesh fall from his mouth. I lose control of my stomach and throw up. Before I recover, my legs are swept out from under me, and I land hard on my back. I try to sit up, but before I can, something heavy slams into my chest. As my eyes focus, I see a grotesque creature of a man bent over me, his knees digging into my chest. Two pale hands wrap around my neck. Why run, Aaron? There's no escaping me. My vision starts to fade. I'm dying. I make one final attempt and throw myself forward. The man strangling me vanishes as I jerk up. My movement halts, ending in a sharp pain in my head. My hand moves towards my head, but it hits something flat above me. As my vision clears, I realize I was dreaming and that I rammed my head into the ceiling. Before I can think about the dream or the pain in my head, I am startled to hear someone speak to me. Hey, Aaron, are you alright? You scared the crap out of me. I turn and look down to see my friend Jason standing at the side of my loft bed. Jason, what are you doing here? Man, you must have hit your head harder than I thought. Don't you remember? We stayed the night here. Jason's remarks remind me that he and my friend Luke stayed at my house last night. Yeah, I remember. You, Luke, and I were supposed to hang out today. Sorry about startling you. I just had a nightmare. Jason's face grows somber, and he nods. It's okay. I understand. I still have no idea what happened to Jason after the power went out two months ago. My department at the police station didn't handle it. The officers who did take care of it decided it was best to keep the details private. All I could find out was that a few people died. It took about two months for Jason's physical injuries to heal after what happened. The same can't be said for his mental state. He seems to be withholding something, and I can tell that his psyche is still pretty banged up. Part of the reason I wanted to hang out today was to cheer him up. I was hoping that if we hung out like we used to, he would recover a little. Wait a second, Jason. Where's Luke? Did he leave already? Jason looks at me, and I'm surprised to see him smile. Oh, him? He's asleep. I laugh and move to get out of my loft bed. Sure enough, I find my friend Luke sleeping in the futon under my loft. I know better than to try and wake him up, I say. He won't get up until he's ready. Tell you what, I'm going to shower. You can go after If Luke still hasn't woken up by then, I suppose we'll throw him into the shower to wake him. Jason smiles for the second time, and I'm glad to see him do so. Sounds like a plan. 
Only problem is, now I hope he doesn't wake up. Chuckling, I grab a change of clothes and make my way into the bathroom. Our area of town still has water thanks to Jason's quick thinking and leadership when the power first went out. The only downside is that without power, all the water is cold, even in the middle of the afternoon. When our solar water heater is absorbing the sun, the water comes out mildly warm. I know from experience that it's too early for warm water. After preparing myself, I turn the shower on and shudder as the cold water sprays onto my back. I scrub myself down with homemade soap, washing my body and hair, and trying to be fast. Even after six months of cold showers, I still find the experience awful. Luke better wake up before it's his turn. I can't think of a worse way to wake up than getting hit by a freezing blast of water. When I'm done with my shower, I head to my room and find Luke wide awake. I leave Jason and Luke to shower and head into the kitchen to make some breakfast. Most of the morning is spent inside my house. Without electricity, we entertain ourselves with a few board games. After a while, we find ourselves itching to move around. Around what I would guess to be three in the afternoon, we decide to go to the park not far from my house. We mess around in attempts at parkour, running, jumping, and climbing around the equipment. We would all parkour like this before the power outage, but since then we've gotten much better at it. The lack of power has forced everyone to do more physical labor. These everyday tasks have sculpted my body and I'm in better shape now than I've ever been. I finish a difficult parkour trick involving jumping a large gap and rolling to a stop. Excited by my success, I jump up and look to my friends for praise. I find their focus locked onto something else out of my field of sight. I turn towards whatever they're watching and see a man walking down the street and staring at us. The man picks up his pace and starts running towards us. As he, as he gets closer, as he gets closer, I notice that his skin is unnaturally pale. Glancing behind me, I see that both Jason and Luke are as tense as I am. The pale skin of the man reminds me of my dream. Shivers crawl up my spine as I decide to go to the highest position. Shivers crawl up my spine as I decide to go to the highest point of the playground. My friends follow me. I can only hope that we'll be safe up here. Things have been peaceful. Things have been peaceful for the past few months. But part of being in a powerless world is being ready for things to go wrong. Of course, there are still some things that disturb the peace on occasion. Anyone willing to go outside understands this. That and anyone willing to go outside understands that anyone willing to go outside understands that and is usually prepared to deal with them. The man gets to the playground and steps onto the wood chips. I put my hand on the gun in my holster in case he tries to attack. The man comes to a stop and starts at us with The man comes to a stop and stares at us with murderous intent. <clears throat> run. Mm -mm. Run. Run for your lives. Mm -mm. Run. Run for your lives. They're coming. The man is hysterical, and I start to think we'll have to scare him off. My hand draws the pistol from its holster. The man stares at my gun and looks angry, but I can tell he won't come closer. 
Why don't you take a breather and tell me what's going on, I say. Tears spring into the man's eyes. Tears spring into the man's eyes as he crouches into a ball, covering his face in the peat. Tears spring into the man's eyes as he crouches into a ball, covering his face in the fetal position. The sudden change from murderous rage to helpless catches me off guard. They're coming. You must run. They attacked me. They're so pale. Their eyes burn like fire. Dark blood running red. Their teeth seared into my flesh. I'm dirty. Unclean. The man rises and starts moving towards us. I aim my gun at him and flip the safety off. He stops and falls to his knees, laughing. This man is clearly schizophrenic. The medication to treat this disorder is long gone, and I can only pity him. Not wanting to shoot him, I decide to holster my pistol and approach him, making sure to do so slowly. As I get closer to him, he jerks his head towards me. For the first time, I have a clear look into his eyes. A web of spidery red veins weaves all over his iris, giving the illusion of blood-red eyes. His pupils are far too large for the sunny day, and I begin to think he's tripping on something. His eyes remind me of the creature in my dream. A pressure pushes onto my chest, almost like an invisible knee pinned against me. A sense of foreboding enters me, and I'm sure that I'm about to be attacked. Before my premonition can come true, I see a tree branch swinging towards the man from the corner of my eye. The branch hits the man hard, and he falls. When I get a closer look, it looks like the man is unconscious, though his eyes remain wide open in a look of fear. Jason stands beside me, still holding the branch. Somehow, I know that he saved me from a horrible fate. Pushing the foolish feelings aside, I tell myself to be rational. Memories of my dream attempt to haunt me, but I push them away. Checking the man's pulse, I find him alive. Unsure of what to do, I pat him down but find no weapons. The man appears to have nothing on him but his clothes. Luke, Jason, and I talk about what to do. We decide to leave him here. He'll likely wake up and be on his way. Though he might be crazy, there's no reason to try and do anything, and killing him would be wrong. With the fun of the playground spoiled, we decide to go back to my house. When we arrive, I warn my parents about what we saw. They share my concern, but agree that leaving the man was for the best. Jason, Luke, and I don't let it dampen our spirits, and we decide to get on with the day. After some discussion on what to do next, we settle on playing a card game in my room. After a frustrating round of squinting at the cards in the dim dusk lighting, we decide to put the cards away. It's in the middle of doing so that we freeze when something slams into my window. What the hell was that? Luke says, speaking the thought we all have. When I look toward the window, I see the pale outline of a man. Focusing on his face, I notice that it's the same man we saw at the park earlier today. How the hell did he find us? Jason mutters in shock. My mind is racing, trying to understand what's going on. When the man throws his face into my window again, I pull my gun out of the holster and aim it at him for the second time today. Leave now or I'll shoot. The man shows no signs of understanding me, and he slams his head into the glass again. I've never shot a person before, and I'm debating if I'll have to when I hear a scream coming from the other room. When I look away, I hear glass shatter and pieces of it hit me in the back. It's only a matter of time before the man comes through. 
Not wanting to shoot him, I back out of my room. Jason and Luke are following behind me. I get a final look at the man struggling to climb through their window. He is oblivious to the remaining shards of glass cutting into him. Get into the bathroom. I'm going to get the others. Without waiting for confirmation, I head towards my older sister's room, where the earlier screams must have come from. Running into Sarah's room, I'm greeted with a sight like the one in my room. Four sets of hands are reaching through my sister's window, grasping for a hold to pull themselves through. Go to the bathroom, Sarah. Now! Sarah looks panicked, but she does what I tell her and runs past me and towards our bathroom. I follow behind her, shutting the bedroom door as I do so. Once I'm out of the room, I'm startled to see Melanie, my younger sister, in the hallway. Aaron, what's going on? I heard screaming. I'm not sure, Melanie, but for now, go into the bathroom with Luke and Jason. Melanie nods and runs to safety. I follow behind her, walking backward to make sure no one attacks from behind. When we arrive at the bathroom, I glimpse everyone inside. They're all clearly worried, but I can tell they aren't frantic. Jason, unlike the others, seems calm and collected. Realizing they are weaponless, I give Jason my gun. Those are my sisters. Protect them with your life. And Jason, don't open the door for anyone other than me or my parents. Before Jason can respond, I hear gunfire coming from my parents' room. Without another thought, I run into their room. When I get there, I am greeted by a terrible sight. One of the attackers has managed to force his way into my parents' room. He has cuts along his body, and blood drips from them onto the carpet. His shoulder has a large wound, mangled by what I presume is a bullet. Despite this, the man seems unfazed. He rushes towards my parents, and a sense of dread overtakes me. My instincts kick in, and I run in to intercept their attacker. I manage to run between the crazed man and my parents. He seems uncaring and charges me as if I was his original target. Before he can reach me, I swing my right fist into the side of his jaw. The blow connects, and the force of it snaps his head back. I know from experience that a blow like this should knock out or disorient someone. Knowing this, I let my guard down. With an unnatural suddenness, the pale man starts swinging his head at me. His jaw gape. He appears to be moving to bite me, and I know by some primal instinct that I'm in trouble. I pull my hands up in defense as the pale man's face races towards mine. Before he collides with me, I hear a gun fire and feel something warm splatter onto my arms. I look down and see the man lying on the floor. Only a fragmented mess of skull and gore remains of what was once his head. My stomach turns and threatens to dislodge its contents. I know I don't have time for that though, so I force my nausea down. I look to my father. He looks as shocked as me and I can tell that he's struggling with what he did. The girls are in the bathroom. We should regroup in the garage. My father nods in agreement, regaining his composure. Together, my parents and I leave the room. We make our way to the bathroom, and once there, my mother knocks on the door. The door swings open, and I see Jason holding the gun up at us, ready to fire. My mother jumps and lets out a quiet yelp. Jason's face is calm, and he lowers the gun. What's going on? Jason asks, as if nothing happened. 
We're moving to the garage to regroup and figure out what's going on. Jason nods. Before we leave the bathroom, I grab a towel and clean the blood off my arms and face. Alright, Jason. I'll take the front and you can take the back. Whatever's going on, these people won't stop unless they're dead. Don't hold back if they attack. One more thing. They don't seem to stop from wounds, so shoot to kill. Taking the lead, I stay a few feet ahead of everyone else. As we make our way through the house, I hear doors closing at the end of our little group. I assume it's Jason's idea and commend him on it. The doors should delay any pursuers and let us know when they're coming. Everything is quiet in the home, and I don't know where the attackers are. Did they even make it their way outside? We don't run into anyone and make it to the garage unscathed. Whatever's going on, Luke whispers from behind me. I don't think this garage will be a good place to stay for very long. How are we supposed to stay safe from these pale men? I ask, and for the first time, our attackers get a name. My mind drifts to other thoughts. These things are so like science fiction zombies. The pale men attacking us don't seem like healthy humans. They have no self-preservation instinct and don't show any signs of understanding us. It's hard to believe it, but how can I deny what I've seen? Whatever's affecting these people has turned them mindless. I don't know how the infection spreads, but it's safe to assume it isn't airborne. The man at the park comes up in my memory, and I recall how he said that he was bitten. Whatever changed to these people, I bet it spreads through bites or blood. Thinking back, I try to remember if any of the blood from the paleman my father shot entered my eyes or mouth. Remembering the spray of blood, I know that chances are it did. We reach the garage and look around. It's clear of any paleman, and other than old unusable tools, the only thing inside is a motorcycle with a sidecar that my father managed to get working. My thoughts halt when I see everyone looking at me. They look as if they are expecting me to come up with an answer. My focus shifts to figuring out a way to get everyone safe. If I'm infected, I'll know soon enough, but right now I need to get everyone to safety. While I ponder different plans, I'm hit by an epiphany. The palemen don't think. They broke through the windows, cutting themselves on the glass. They didn't even try to avoid our attacks. They don't listen to reason or respond to warnings. Furthermore, they seem to attack senselessly. So the safest place I can think of would be a place someone couldn't reach without using reason or problem-solving skills. Somewhere you could only reach with a ladder. Hold on, I know where to go. Do you guys remember that decrepit building we worked on earlier this summer? Before the power outage? Jason nods and answers me. Yes, I remember, but why are you mentioning it? It's high up on a second story, and we can defend it pretty well. I doubt my house is the only one under attack. Think about it. These things are mindless. If we went there, we could remove the stairs and be safe on the second floor. I doubt they're good climbers. Besides, can you think of anywhere better? Jason looks at me, and I can see that he's thinking my plan through. No, it seems like a pretty good place to be right now. Everyone else nods in agreement with the plan. All right then, I say. 
Let's grab food supplies and anything else you can think of. Let's go under the assumption that we'll be here for an extended amount of time. Everyone agrees, and we get to work gathering food from the nearby kitchen, packing it into duffel bags that my dad keeps in the garage. Even better, we find that my dad packed several months' worth of food and supplies into our crawl space. With everything we grab, we should be pretty well supplied for a month or two. When we finish gathering supplies, we let the dogs in from the backyard. Since the backyard has a fence, it's free of any palemen. I'm not sure how useful the dogs will be, but I'm glad we aren't going to abandon them. We load everything into the motorcycle and sidecar. The fact that we have a mechanical motorcycle is amazing, and I know my father went to a lot of work to build it. I've never been more thankful or proud of him than at this moment. The motorcycle has a two-person cab, so altogether it has a four-person capacity. Looking at my father, I see his gaze is on the motorcycle. We both understand who will take the bike. I'll see you there, I say to my father, knowing he understands what I mean. Plus, I'm sure Jason and Luke want to get their own families anyway, so why don't I help them with that? My father nods and helps my crying mother and sisters onto the bike and cab. I can't blame them for crying. Everything is moving so fast. If I'd let myself, I'm sure I'd be crying right now as well. Taking a long look at them, I pray that it isn't my last. The bike starts, and I take that as a signal to open the garage door. I pull the latch, and a few suspended sandbags fall slowly as the garage door opens. Jason readies the gun I gave him. As the garage opens, a scene from hellish horror greets us. Pale men are stumbling through the streets. From where we are, I can see several corpses littering the streets. Smoke billows from some distant, unknown fire. Right outside the garage are two pale men. Luckily, neither is blocking the motorcycle's path. To Jason's credit, he doesn't hesitate. He opens fire, and one of the palemen drops to the ground lifeless. My father, seeing a clear path, accelerates out of the garage. One of the dogs rushes the other palemen shortly after. Looking past the driveway, I can see several more palemen coming towards us. They ignore the motorcycle, which is making clean escape. Aaron, we have to go now. If we stay any longer, we'll be trapped. Jason's voice pushes me into action, and I nod at him. Together, Jason, Luke, and I start running. We run along my drive and onto the street. Before long, several pale men are chasing us. Their movements are clumsy and erratic, so it's easy to stay ahead of them. The fear of death keeps me from slowing, and it's only when we hit a patch of grass and the pale men stop pursuing us that I slow down and stop. The others follow suit, and we watch as the pale men seem to have lost us. Luke starts to say something, and like a radar, the pale men home in on us. Once again we run, but learning from experience, we lose them by going into another patch of grass. Jason and Luke look at me, both not making a sound. I motion for them to follow, and we make it a safe distance from our pursuers. Only when I can look around and not see any palemen with a few hundred yards do I dare whisper to them. Weird. It seems like they only react to sound.
Maybe they are blind or something. If that's the case, it wouldn't surprise me if the gunshots earlier attracted a bunch to your house. I nod at Jason's remark. He comments about how few guns we have. I know my dad has a pistol, but we forgot the shotgun at home. I suppose there's no retrieving it now. I do have a good idea of where to get some more guns, though. Why don't we head down to the police station so we can arm ourselves? Both Jason and Luke agree with my idea, so we take a day tour to the police station. On our way, we see total chaos. Screaming people run in the streets, and pale men are everywhere. Gunfire pops and fires blaze through the town. We do our best to stay silent and hidden from everyone, and somehow we make it to the police station. We go into the police station and find several dead bodies inside. One look at the bodies on the floor tell me these pale men aren't immortal. The floors are littered with not only dead pale men, but also several officers I recognize. Grief threatens to overtake me, but I force myself to maintain my composure. We cannot afford a breakdown now. I shut my emotions off, knowing they'll only get in the way. Looking at the dead, I see that they haven't transformed into pale men. Whatever is creating these monsters doesn't appear to happen after death, like in the movies. As we walk through the station, I lose hope of finding survivors. We push past the dead, brutalized bodies... I hear someone throwing up along the way, but I don't look to see who it is. When we arrive at the station's armory, I notice some movement against the far wall. At first, thinking it might be a pale man, I prepare myself. On second look, I see that he isn't turned, or at least not all the way. His skin is pale and his eyes are tinged with red. Something about the way he looks at me tells me that he is still in control. He's bleeding from several wounds, the body of his fellow officers and those of Paleman surround him. It's obvious that a large fight took place here and that he is the only survivor. The man sees us and tries to raise his arm. It's only then that I notice a gun in his hand. Don't come any closer or I'll shoot. I look at the man and feel sympathy for him. I don't recognize him as an officer, but that isn't surprising. There are plenty of officers I've never met. I was only on the force for a few months after all. Calm down. I'm an officer like you. I was on duty today. Can you tell me what happened here? The man relaxes and I approach him. When I look closer, I can see several bite marks on his arms. Those things that attacked us, I'm the only one that survived. The man sobs and spits up some blood. He's clearly in deep physical and emotional pain. After a few seconds, he continues. Some of the other officers were on patrol this morning. In the fields, a few miles outside of town, they were bitten by something. (laughs) Of course, we patched them up when we got back. The man's breath comes in gasps as he fights off whatever is attacking him. He seems to become more frantic, and bloody spittle collects at the corner of his mouth. They declined into a mad state, and started attacking a few hours later. It's like I've seen in the movies. They're vicious, and act as though they aren't alive. 
we got things under control. And that's when the rest of them arrived. The man starts laughing and screams something unintelligible and full of anger. It seems as though the man is slipping, and Jason looks ready to shoot him. I motion for Jason to give me the gun, and when he does, I see a weight lift from him. As I walk towards the man, I realize that my suspicion of transferal through bite is accurate. I also realize that the dead officers didn't change. These aren't supernatural living dead. This realization is somehow comforting. It's reassuring to know that what we are facing is as mortal as we are. I don't have much more time. Please, kill me now. Before I turn into one of them, I beg you, at least let me die with my sanity. I look at the man, knowing that he is right. I ready myself to shoot him. I hesitate. I've never taken a human life. Even though this man is asking me to kill him, I'm not sure it's the right thing to do. The man's gaze is starting to fade, and I realize I have to decide now. Without another thought, I steady my aim and turn off the safety. The man smiles at me and mouths, Thank you. I hear the bang. I want to blink and look away, but I don't. The bullet hits its mark, and the man's head splatters against the back wall. All the emotion I've been holding back floods me, and I fall to the ground weeping. It isn't until Jason puts a hand on my shoulder that I'm able to pull myself back together and stand up. There are some guns in that locker, and the rifles are in the one next to it, I say, directing Jason and Luke to the lockers. They collect all the guns and bullets they find. After taking another moment to collect myself, I go through the building, gathering guns from the dead police officers. They no longer need them, and we could use them to protect our families. That's what I tell myself, to make it feel okay. After we have all the guns and ammo we can find, we load them into a police-marked duffel bags and head out the back door. It won't be long before more pale men arrive attracted by the sound of the gunfire. Fortunately, we find two bicycles in the back of the station. Well, it looks like I'm walking, I say to the others. You guys get your families and get them to come to the rendezvous site, where my family should be now. We'll need a ladder and food. Jason, you bring the ladder, and both of you bring food. I have to presume my family is safe so I'm going to check on one of my friends and try to get his family to join us. I know plenty of people are dying now, but I wouldn't feel right letting my friend face this horde on his own. Both Jason and Luke nod. Before they go, I grab another pistol and some ammo, which I put in my pockets. I also take a hatchet and a combat knife from the supplies. After I do this, they ride off without saying another word. I hope they remain safe and I know that the weapons will go a long way to help. With them gone, I start walking towards Brian's house. The walk is slow. I try to shut out the death and screams for help as I sneak my way through town. Part of me wants to help, but I know that every minute I delay is another chance for Brian and his family to die. 
This has been the Rage, a Story of Survival podcast, and I hope you enjoyed. If you did, I look forward to having you listen to the next one. Hey, you still with me? If you listen this far into the podcast, you must have enjoyed my content. If you enjoy my work and what I am doing here, you should check out the bonus episode of this series. It is the intro to the next book I am writing. If you want to learn more, you should come listen to it and check it out.